Hi, and welcome to this audio edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? with host Doris Hansen. On this program, we discuss polygamy and Mormon fundamentalism from a biblical Christian perspective. We talk about the history of polygamy, its modern-day fruit, share stories from people who have escaped polygamy, and talk about current events relating to polygamy. You can learn more about the video edition of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. And now, here's Doris. Welcome to our show tonight. This is Polygamy, What Love Is This? And I am your host, Doris Hansen. And we are here every Thursday night to talk about polygamy as taught by Joseph Smith and other Mormon polygamists. But they all called it celestial marriage. We thank you for joining us and spending part of your evening with us tonight. And as we discuss issues on our show, please keep in mind that we're dealing with both polygamists and with Mormon doctrines. Polygamy, uh, polygamists believe in the same religion religious books as the LDS believe. They believe and teach the same foundational doctrines as the mainline Mormon church believes and teaches. In fact, Joseph Smith belongs to the polygamists as much and perhaps even more than the mainstream church because they follow Smith's teachings more closely than the mainstream church follows them. If the Mormon fundamentalists are wrong now, then the original Mormon church was also wrong. And our purpose is to bring biblical truths to Mormon fundamentalists because Jesus said that the Father seeks those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. There's a huge difference between the Mormon and polygamous views of marriage and the biblical view of marriage. And tonight we want to discuss the differences of those views. And because Mormon fundamentalists rely upon Joseph Smith and the early Mormon church teachings and their use of the Bible to try and confirm unbiblical belief, we're also going to turn to the Bible and its doctrinal authority to answer the question at hand, is marriage eternal and is it part of God's plan of salvation? Our guest tonight has studied this question and published two articles on the internet about them. I so enjoyed reading the articles that I invited him to come on the show and to present this information to our viewers and he agreed to come. He's the Director of Research for the Institute for Religious Research based in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Their website is www.irr.org. It's a great website for all kinds of information. He has taught apologetics, biblical studies, and religious studies at Biola University and Cornerstone University. And he's participated in numerous conferences, debates, radio broadcasts, and podcasts throughout the United States, the United Kingdom, and Uganda. He's the author of about 60 articles and author or co-author of 13 books, including Putting Jesus in His Place, The Case for the Deity of Christ, Faith Has Its Reasons, Integrative Approaches to Defending the Christian Faith, and What Mormons Believe. He's currently completing a doctrinal dissertation on the Book of Mormon, and has written extensively on issues pertaining to Mormonism. I would like to introduce and welcome our special guest tonight, Rob Bowman. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's good to have you here. You've got a great uh, treasure of information to share with our viewers tonight regarding this unbiblical belief of eternal or celestial marriage, which uh, this culture hangs on to very desperately. Mormonism's belief about eternal marriage is based on Doctrine and Covenants 131 and 132. 
Doctrine and Covenants 131 verse 2 says, and I quote, And in order to obtain the highest, a man must enter into this order of the priesthood, meaning the new and everlasting covenant of marriage. Section 132 also uses the phrase new and everlasting covenant. When Joseph Smith penned these words, the new and everlasting covenant, he was using a phrase coined exclusively for polygamy. Polygamy was also called celestial marriage and patriarchal marriage, plural marriage, the principle and order of the priesthood, as we saw in section 131. All these terms were used to hide their practice of polygamy. But mainstream Mormons now understand the term to mean temple marriage and eternal marriage, which is simply not how Joseph Smith used it. But polygamists today continue to refer to celestial marriage as polygamy and as the new and everlasting covenant. Rob, before we get started on this, this is a very hot topic with our culture. It's a very sensitive one, as I'm sure you know. Virtually every polygamous family and every Mormon family have learned from eternal marriage about it from the cradle. I mean, it's part of who they are. And for most of them, it's a beautiful and a fulfilling doctrine, and they just love it. And to, to, to think that it can't be true is so upsetting for some of them. It actually just sends their world uh, reeling. It, it literally uh, spins them almost out of control to think it's not possible. They can't comprehend that marriage is for this life only. So I don't know if you've got anything to say to that sensitivity before we get started, but... I think it would be very helpful for people to understand that the Bible's teaching about marriage and family is not something lesser than what Mormonism claims, but something greater. It is. Mormonism, uh, in its doctrine of an eternal family and eternal marriage, is really a more limited view of the eternal state of the righteous. In the Bible, God's redeemed people will all be family. Mm -hmm. in a sense that we are only able to anticipate in a very limited way in this mortal life. And it's got to be much greater than we can anticipate. It's greater. There's going to be a greater level of transparency, of mutual understanding, of love, unity. of unity, of, of appreciation for each other's gifts and and everything about the other person we will have an openness with one another uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God, uh, that we get a foretaste of at best mm -hmm. in this life. Yeah, and we'll have greater experiences. And it's going to, I believe truly from biblical, some biblical sources, that it's going to be an adventure. We're not going to sit on a cloud spinning on a harp. That's right. Uh, we are going to live in the new heavens and new earth, is the description that is used in Second Peter 3 and in Revelation 21. And it's going to be a, a, a sort of a resurrected universe. Mm -hmm. It's going to yeah. be a world in which we are going to be glorified human beings. Mm -hmm. We'll still be male and female. Uh, we'll still have human bodies. Uh, but our life will be of a different level and order and experience that we, we don't fully totally, comprehend. Totally different here. C.S. Lewis once said that when people worry about not having marital relationships in, in, in eternity, they're rather like the little boy who is told that being married is like chocolate only better. 
and the little boy can't comprehend that. Well, you mean there's no chocolate involved? No, but something even better than chocolate. Well, you can't get better than chocolate as far <laughs> as the little boy is concerned. And so uh, we're rather like that little boy. Oh. We think of the earthly pleasures of human physical mortal life, including marital relationships, as the epitome, the, 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 the highest form of pleasure and, and joy and experience. But they're really very limited compared to what we're going what to experience in eternity. eternity. So if people would understand that what we're saying is not that we're going to be losing relationships, but that we're going to be experiencing them in a new way and a higher level than mm -hmm. what we can experience right. here, then I think that can take some of the sting out of uh, the emotional reaction that people have to that. Right, and David said that at your right hand there will be pleasures and delights forevermore. So he u actually uses that word, uh, pleasure and delightful. And, and we're not here, as we go through our, what we're going to be talking about, we're not here to mock or degrade individuals but, or, their, or even their belief in celestial marriage. What we want to do is bring the Bible to clarify marriage according to God who created marriage in the first place. Uh, now, if polygamy was to be an everlasting covenant, and if this culture believes in their own scriptures, polygamy never could have ended in 1890 or any other time, because Doctrine and Covenants 3.3 says, and I quote, Remember, remember, that this is not the work of God that is frustrated, but the work of men. Well, since polygamy for eternal life, as was taught in the early Mormon church, since it was frustrated, it must have not been the work of man, or it must not have been the work of God, but the work of man, according to Doctrine and Covenants 3.3. So, will you explain why Joseph Smith evidently viewed, before he came into this eternal marriage, um, idea, why he viewed all marriages prior to, I think it was 1841, including his own marriage to Emma, as time only? Well, why wouldn't he? Uh, that was the universal view held by human beings in Joseph Smith's culture, and uh, it was the uh, biblical view, and he inherited that. And so for most of his life, uh, he, like everybody else, understood that marriage was a temporal covenant. A covenant it's uh, you could say it's sacred mm -hmm. um, but it's a temporal covenant that ends when the person dies in Romans 7 verses 1 through 3 for example Paul says that very ex very specifically that when when a, the, a man's wife dies according to the law of marriage he is no longer bound to that wife the, mm -hmm. that marriage relationship has come to an end and so this is this is the view that Joseph Smith and everybody else in his culture had and Joseph departed from that late in his life to institute this uh, doctrine of eternal marriage which really was in my view a justification for his decision to take plural lives. I, I believe it. I think the evidence shows that that uh, he used that as a coercion effort to bring people into the idea that plural marriage was okay. That's what it seems to be in what I read. It's a religious justification for a practice he'd already started yeah. before, Long before that. he announced the doctrinal basis for it. Right. Uh, whenever you have a practice that has to have a justification come later, you've got a problem. Yeah, for sure. And this is certainly much later. Biblical references are used, the, the Mormonism uses biblical references for support of their eternal marriage idea. Uh, Luke chapter 20 verses 34 and 35 is an example of a biblical 
proof texts that they use to support this concept. So let's read those verses and then you can explain why it isn't teaching eternal marriage. So Luke chapter 20, verse 34 and 35 says, And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Is that not teaching eternal marriage? They see it that it is. Well, it's teaching that it isn't eternal marriage. <laughs> and uh, uh, in order to get around that, uh, Mormon uh, uh, teachers have sometimes argued that what Jesus is saying here is that you have to get married in this life, but the marriage continues after you die. Mm -hmm. And so that's how they'll try to reinterpret that passage. However, Jesus is clearly not saying that, mm -hmm. and here's why. The question that was posed to him was a kind of a silly scenario that, that the Sadducees, who didn't believe in resurrection at all, mm -hmm. made up for him. They said, according to the law in Deuteronomy 25, verse five, when a man uh, dies without, uh, and his wife doesn't have any children, uh, his brother is to step in and it's presumably a single brother, is to take, it, take the widow as his wife and have children uh, sort of on behalf of the departed, uh, the deceased uh, mm -hmm. older brother. And uh, so the Sadducee said, suppose this happened seven times uh, where the brother gets married, he dies the, without having any children, the, his widow marries the brother, he, the brother dies and so on, and he marries, she marries seven different brothers, and they all die and she still has no kids. The Sadducees asked Jesus, in the resurrection, which yeah. man will be her they husband? They thought they were trapping him. <laughs> they thought they had, they came up with a, tra a trap question that uh, there's no good answer for. Uh, which, to which of these seven men, seven brothers, will, will the woman be married in the resurrection? They asked Jesus. Well, Jesus' answer basically is none of them. That marriage is for mortals, it's for this life, it's a temporal covenant. Uh, and Jesus says very specifically in the very next verse, uh, after the ones that you read there, verse 36 of Luke 20, for they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now there's a couple of interesting things to note here. Okay. The first is that they become sons of God they become children of God in this full sense only after the resurrection. Mm. They're, not all, they're not eternal spirit children of God who existed in a pre-existent world, came here in order to get their wives and then go home to heaven mm -hmm. and with, their, with their wives. They are mortal creatures who have temporal marriage relationships for this world, for this mortal life, in this age. In the age to come, Jesus says, they won't be doing that. They, they will be immortal beings. They will not be propagating their species anymore. They'll be done with that. Mm -hmm. And so the, this passage actually contradicts two very common Mormon uh, doctrinal claims, the doctrine of preexistence and the doctrine of eternal marriage. Jesus contradicts both of those mm -hmm. doctrines in one fell swoop. Wow. Interesting. And there, there are many other scriptures that do the same thing. In fact, there are some other of the biblical passages that we're going to use tonight. We're going to list them on the screen, but we'll put them up on our website under show notes. Uh, but the passages we're going to be talking about are Genesis um, 
126 through 28 and chapter 2, 221 through 24, Ecclesiastes 314, uh, three passages in Matthew, Mark 1019, 1 Corinthians 11, 11, Ephesians 531 and 1 Peter 3, 7. So we're going to look at some of these verses that Rob has really uh, dissected for your information and he will explain how they've been misapplied or misunderstood that they do not refer to or teach eternal marriage and each one of these verses as we go through them of course we'll put up on the screen so you can um, read along with us so let's start with Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 through 28 then God said this is of course during creation let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth so God created man in his own image in the image of God he created him male and female he created them and God blessed them and God said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth now they've used these verses to 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 back up their idea of eternal marriage how how does this say anything about eternal marriage that's a good question i'd like to know the answer to that but i, I think what's going on here to be serious is that in mormonism these verses are read through the prism of the Mormon doctrine of pre-existence. Mm -hmm. And so the assumption is that these are pre-existent spirits who have come to the earth as physical beings in order to become uh, capable of moving toward uh, becoming like Heavenly Father and mm -hmm. Heavenly Mother. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're going to become gods like them. But in order to do that, they have to pass through mortality and they have to get married and that this husband-wife relationship is supposed to be part of the process of getting uh, to uh, the celestial kingdom mm -hmm. uh, with their uh, spouses. And, uh, and, and that's to them, to be in the image of God means that you're going to be exactly like your heavenly parents. Mm -hmm. Well, this is, it's a consistent understanding within the Mormon worldview, but it's not what Genesis is talking about right, at all. it's not. This is talking about not the sending of human beings into physical bodies, but about their creation. Uh, God creates Adam and Eve. Uh, out of the dust of the ground, he creates Adam in Genesis 2-7, and then Eve from Adam's rib. This is how they come into being. Not, right. This is not, the be this is not just the beginning of their mortality. This is the beginning of their existence in a biblical context. And so uh, Genesis 1 isn't t saying anything about marriage being eternal. It's saying that God created human beings to be in his image. In a biblical context, that means we are God's physical representatives here on this earth. We are here to represent him, his interests, to serve him, to rule over, as Genesis 1 says, to rule over the other life forms mm -hmm. on this earth yeah. on God's behalf. Mm -hmm. Take care we of are stewards yeah. of God's creation here on the earth. That's what it's talking about. It has nothing to do with us looking like God, having physical bodies like Heavenly Father or Heavenly right, Mother, which right. is not in the Bible right, at all. Right. Uh, so that's a, it's just a, a misreading of the passage based on a theology that's brought into it from the outside. And so when God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, he's not talking about polygamy. No. <laughs> no, he's not talking about polygamy. Uh, polygamy is not necessary for that. If it had been, God would have made Adam, Eve, Jane, 
you know, uh -huh. uh, Sarah and a few other ladies uh, and gotten it started that way. Right. But he made Adam and Eve, he made it one man and one woman, and that is the paradigm for marriage in right. the Bible. Right. And uh, Jesus himself quotes the marriage uh, passage, uh, what, what has become the marriage passage at the end of Genesis mm -hmm. 2, as the paradigm of marriage is the union of one man and one woman. That's what that. God understands marriage to be. Okay, great. Now, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 through 24, are, is another passage that they use to uh, justify their eternal marriage idea. So we're going to read those passages, verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her in, or brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is, uh, at last is bone of my bone and, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So your explanation of the previous verses kind of follows through with these that it does not teach eternal marriage. Uh, yes, it does teach that God designed human beings for marriage. That mm -hmm. marriage is the normal, is not the required, but the normal part of human life that men and women uh, find each other and they form uh, you know, marriage units as the basis of the home. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's that's certainly a God-ordained reality, but the passage does not teach that it extends beyond the physical mortal life that we have in this age, and that's the misunderstanding. That passage simply doesn't address that question. It doesn't address eternal marriage at all. Now, of course, Brigham Young taught that Adam and Eve were brought here from another planet, and she was just one of his many wives, Brigham Young says, and he brought one of his Eve, one of his wives, with him, which uh, kind of this it, it kind of sets the stage, if you will, in the minds <coughs> of the of his listeners that from the beginning. Um, polygamy and marriage in heaven was the reality. So when Brigham Young said that, but in Genesis 2:24 it says one flesh, one flesh for the man and for the woman. But polygamy, I've heard, I've had conversations with people who will say the man has is one flesh when he's with this wife and he's one flesh when he's with this wife and one flesh when he's with this wife. So they're, they're saying that that is not anything against eternal marriage or polygamy. Well, it, it certainly isn't for it. The passage doesn't support the idea. And again, uh, the idea that Adam only brought one of his wives with him and he left some others back on the other planet is yeah. uh, something that has to be read into the text. Right. Uh, clearly, uh, Jesus used the passage in Matthew 19, for example, as a model for God's intention for marriage, uh, that it was not something to be taken lightly, that divorce was something to be avoided if, if at all possible. That, uh, and, and he used that passage in Genesis 2 about the man and the woman. So the assumption uh, that Jesus shared with his Jewish culture mm -hmm. was that marriage was meant to be monogamous. This is something contrary to what we find, uh, of course, with the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Right. But by the time of Jesus, it was clearly understood uh, that marriage was intended to be uh, a monogamous reunion, just one woman per mm -hmm. man. Okay, And that's, of course, the way when you read the, take the entire Bible, Right. A cover to cover and everything it and says about it. There are many passages topic. that talk about this. Okay, the next passage is Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 14. 
And it says, I perceived that whatever God has endures forever, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. So from this statement that what God does endures forever is taken to mean eternal marriage? I guess the uh, inference is if God, if whatever God does endures forever and God does marriage and that in the sense that he institutes it, then he institutes it forever. But that's not very good reasoning. God also institutes uh, all kinds of things, including death. Uh, death is something that God instituted. Uh, in the animal kingdom, it's something that uh, he brought upon human beings because of the f of the fall. Mm -hmm. uh, God does things that aren't necessarily meant to last forever. God is the one who instituted the law of Moses. The law of Moses doesn't last forever. Right. Uh, so it's, it's not a very good argument. Uh, it's of course the passage isn't even talking about marriage, so right, we're, we're right. bringing into the passage an issue that isn't really germane to what Ecclesiastes is so talking about. So it's completely about. out of context, yeah, definitely. totally just pulled out and reapplied right. to a Basically um, what it's saying is if idea. God does something, you can't fight it. Yeah. You can't stop God, uh, and that's what the passage is saying. It's not saying that everything God institutes, He institutes for eternity. And, and again, it's so important to um, encourage our listeners, our viewers, to take everything in context. That's and right. really get a good grip on what is going on in that passage before they... Nine times out of ten, if somebody reads or quotes a verse and it doesn't, and they say it says something and you don't see it, uh, and you're wondering what's going on, nine times out of ten, if you just read a few verses before and after mm -hmm. and read the thing in, in a paragraph context, yeah. you'll see what's going on. You'll, you'll see that it's not. Yeah. You, can't pick it, you can't pick and choose and apply it according to what my interpretation is. Now, but, however, in this verse in Ecclesiastes, if nothing is to be added to marriage based on their interpretation of that package, wouldn't that, uh, wouldn't that include polygamy? God instituted monogamy, therefore let's not add to that and make it polygamy? Well, absolutely. If God uh, sets up uh, marriage as a monogamous relationship, then we should respect that. And uh, again, the, the, the New Testament in particular has a number of statements on this point. Mm -hmm. Very it sure clear. does. It sure does. Okay, now the next passages are are very, very good. They're powerful in this culture. And they are Matthew chapter 16, verse 19, and 18, uh, verse 18. So we'll read these verses and explain why they do not have anything to do with uh, the Mormon view that marriage is eternal when it's sealed here on this planet. Matthew 16, 19 says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew 18, 18 says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Kind of a double verse here. Jesus is saying this to the people two chapters apart. This is a big verse in Mormonism. Yeah, it's from looking at this from an outsider's perspective, uh, just looking at these passages in the context of the Gospel of Matthew, it's hard to see why. Yeah. But I understand how if you read these verses out of context, you could, you could come up with that. What Jesus is talking about is the church. The apostles have been uh, appointed to be the foundational members and leaders of the early church. Uh, God is authorizing the apostles to act on his behalf. So. God, the apostles on, God, on Christ's authority are going to open up 
uh, the people of God to include Gentiles. Mm -hmm. This is a major theme in Matthew and in the rest of the New Testament, that uh, the gospel is going to go to all the nations, Matthew 28, uh, 19, 19. And so Jesus is saying, you apostles are going to act on my authority, and you're going to do what I tell you to do, and whatever you do on, on that authority, that goes. Mm -hmm. He's not talking about if God... God institutes marriage, it has to be forever, or if, if, uh, if the church uh, blesses a union, then it's forever. It, it's not even close to being in the context marriage of what Jesus Marriage not the context in that at all, not no, one bit. not at all. And it's not just that marriage isn't in the context, it's, it's really misusing the text, because what Jesus is talking about is the church, the apostles have been appointed to make these decisions to open up the church, the gospel to people of other nations and so forth, and they're acting on his behalf, and you go by what they say. Mm -hmm. And then to come in, you know, 18 centuries later mm -hmm. and institute a practice that is foreign to what the apostles themselves laid down in the New Testament. Right. That is clearly going against what Jesus is saying in these passages. It certainly is. And if that was so true, if, if marriage was indeed part of the eternal plan of salvation, which the whole all of Mormondom teaches that it is, wouldn't there have been some guidelines in the Bible about that? I guess that it, has to be among the plain and precious things that got lost or taken out. Oh, uh, uh, that's an unfortunate misunderstanding of the Bible. The, the Bible is not uh, uh, has not had things like that taken out. Mm -mm. Uh, we have we keep finding earlier and earlier manuscripts of both the Old and New Testaments, and we we don't find what we lost. ought to be finding <laughs> if Mormonism right. is true. That's Instead, right. what we're finding is that the text has been remarkably. Uh, stable mm -hmm. uh, over its entire history. Uh, and there's no way Joseph Smith could have known that in the 1830s and early 1840s. But uh, uh, in the century that followed Joseph Smith, uh, archaeologists found the most remarkable uh, treasure troves of ma biblical manuscripts mm -hmm. that absolutely proved that Joseph Smith had it exactly backwards. Uh, the biblical manuscripts uh, did not lose text. If anything, over the centuries, they added a little bit as scribes would add little words here or there mm -hmm. uh, to, to sort of explain things. But they didn't take things out. Mm -mm. And so and this, idea that the, this idea that the New Testament originally taught plural marriage or eternal marriage or celestial marriage or polygamy, there's no basis there's for it. There's no basis at all. And, of course, they use these verses um, that I just read in Matthew to back their authority to seal people in their temple rituals and the polygamists yes. do the same thing only they just don't they don't have the mormon temples they have their own special holy places that they use and they seal their spouses to each other and they seal families to each other and so on and so forth but there's no authority for that at all in this in fact the new testament the only sealing that takes the place in the new testament is when we receive jesus and we're sealed to him by the holy spirit that's right uh, there is no ritual involved in uh, in in marriage that uh, makes it something other than what we normally understand as marriage. This idea that there are two kinds of marriages, that there are marriages for time only and marriages for time and eternity, is completely foreign to the Bible. You cannot find anything that even remotely, you know, has mm -hmm. a whiff of that idea. Yeah, yeah. Everyone who's married is married, period, end of discussion. Yeah, yeah. Okay, the next one is Matthew 19. And uh, again, I think it was when the Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. 
and chapter 19, verses 3 through 8 reads, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. Is the point of this passage have anything to do with eternal marriage? Uh, No. Now, I think that what... uh Mormons extract from this passage in support of eternal marriage is uh, Jesus' statement, what God has joined together, let not man separate. And they argue sometimes that that means that God has joined the man and the woman together in marriage, and so therefore it cannot be undone. It lasts even after death. But of course, Jesus isn't talking about what happens after death. He's talking about letting, about human beings not ending their marriages before they're dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, that is not getting divorced. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to read that, uh, read into that passage, the idea of, of internal marriage is, is uh, flagrantly misreading it in context. The other point is, of course, that Jesus very clearly, explicitly speaks of marriage here as monogamous. Mm-hmm. The two shall become one flesh. And there's no room in, in the way Jesus presents this for uh, of course, you'll be the t- these two people will be one flesh, and then one of them will be one flesh with another woman, and and another woman. No, it, the, the man, the woman, leave their homes. They come together. They form a new home uh, with themselves as the foundation of it. That one man and that one woman become the one flesh. That's how Jesus explains marriage here. Mm-hmm. And um, there's no room in this for. Uh, plurality of wives or anything like that. Right. And God doesn't change his mind. He doesn't say one thing one point and then change his mind. He certainly doesn't change his mind because the political winds blow the wrong way. Right. Uh, which is what happened in the mainstream LDS church at the end of the 19th century uh, and the beginning of the 20th century uh, when they had to face the issue again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when when prophets speak for God and say, this is what God says we must do, come what may, then when it comes, <laughs> you stand your ground. You, still say you don't say, well, we don't want right. to go to jail, never mind, you know. <laughs> and, and, and so, uh, you know, in a sense, those that held on to the practice were being more consistent than those who with repudi- Joseph Smith. with Joseph Smith than, than those who repudiated it. Unfortunately, they were consistently holding on to something that wasn't based in truth to begin holding with. on to what God said. True. The next scripture I, I find interesting that they can use eternal marriage and get it out of the verse. I, so I'm looking forward to your explanation <laughs> of how they get polyg- or, um, eternal marriage out of this. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 11, which says, Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman, for as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. How does that teach eternal marriage? Well, I can only, my, my understanding is that Mormons have used this passage to argue that <coughs> the man and the woman are always supposed to be with each other, even beyond death, even in eternity in the resurrection. Um, but 
again, we're, we're trying to extract an idea out of a passage that really isn't even addressing that. Uh, Paul is saying, uh, look, uh, women, just because you're Christians does not mean now you don't need to pay any attention to your husbands, that you're now free of your marital responsibilities. See, uh, there was an error that was creeping into the church at Corinth uh, that took many forms, but one of the forms that it took was the idea that if you're a Christian, that means you're free from all obligations. You can do whatever you want. Yeah, And so Paul has to address that very strongly and say, no, uh, the Christian life is a life of holiness, it's a life of love, it's a life of faithfulness, and that includes in the marriage relationship. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, he's saying uh, the man and the woman are <coughs> both responsible for, to each other in the marriage relationship. They have obligations. They, they should be loving one another. That doesn't end just because you've become a Christian. And that's really what he's saying. He's not even addressing the issue of whether that marriage is meant to mm-hmm. persist after death. And, and again, the relationship will not end in the resurrection. It'll be different. Mm-hmm. Right. The, my <coughs> wife and I will know each other in eternity. We will love each other. We will love each other better than we do now. It'll be free of all of the yeah. stuff that all happens stuff between here. us because we don't understand each other rightly or because we're being selfish, mostly me, you know, that'll all be over. We will be free to love each other perfectly. Will it be the same kind of relationship? No. We will be done raising children. Mm -hmm. We will be done propagating children. Right. But we will, so we won't be married in that, uh, that limited earthly sense, but we will be just gloriously happy and knowing each other in eternity. And and the same for all married people who come to know Christ in this right. life. They have the promise that those relationships will be will be freed of all the the, the unhappy restraints of mortality, and um, and will experience them on a new on a new, new level. level. So I, I would just mm-hmm. encourage people to not be limited in their thinking about this. That in fact, what we have the promise in the New Testament of eternity of all being brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God experiencing total freedom of, of, of the full revelation of what it means to be God's children, as Paul talks about in Romans 8, uh, that is so much more it is. than what Mormonism has taught with its doctrine of eternal marriage. It is. Absolutely it is. It's greater, much greater. Um, and there's, again, there's some, some mystery in it, but then we can't understand the things of heaven from uh, our earthly standpoint. I'm going to go to three or First Peter three seven now and read the verse here. Um, it says, "Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered." So Peter, by saying that the wives are heirs with them, mm-hmm. is that the part they use as the eternal marriage? Boy, if all of the misinterpretations <laughs> of the Bible that we've talked about, this one I think is the most interesting and the most unfortunate. Yes, we are going to be heirs together of the glories of salvation. If you're both Christian. If, if we're both, both believers. And Peter is saying that not because that there is this eternal marriage thing that you have to get it together in this life in the temple or wherever and you have to have this ceiling and then you get to be kind of 
you, you, you inherit together this new family, eternal family thing. No, all believers are co-heirs. Right. Not just the husband and the wife together, not just the husband, the wife, and their children together, but all believers in Christ are co-heirs with Jesus Christ by his gracious atonement for our salvation. We can inherit eternal life through faith in him. My wife is one of those co-heirs. That's what Peter is telling yes. me. He's telling me, treat that wife of yours as a you as know, an equal. As a, as, a, as a sister in Christ, right. you know. If you have trouble with the, you know, the marriage level aspect of the relationship, at least remember that she's your sister in Christ yeah. and love her and respect her and treat her well because you're going to be living forever with that person yeah. in eternity, not just that person because they happen to be your spouse, but because that person's your brother or sister in Christ. Yeah. And he even ends that verse with, so that your prayers will not be hindered. In other words, a man's prayers can be hindered from God's response if the husband's not treating the wife with that kind of respect. Well, Jesus is very clear about this. If we don't forgive one another, God's going to be holding back forgiveness from yeah. us. We're going to have a break in our fellowship and our relationship with God if we are not loving others as God would have us do. And so loving others and loving God go together. Mm -hmm. And if you, don't love your, if, you, if you don't love your wife <laughs> or your husband, then uh, that's going to cause a break in your relationship to God. That's understandable, and, that's mm -hmm. what, and Peter certainly is, is making that point. But it's not because there's something unique about the marriage relationship that's for eternity as opposed to all Christians sharing eternal life. Uh, in the in the age to come. That's a misunderstanding of the passage. Okay, now these passages that we've read here are supposed to confirm eternal marriage, but we've discovered, of course, that they do not confirm eternal marriage at all. In fact, in most cases, it's just the opposite of what it's teaching. But we're going to take another approach very quickly. We've uh, only got, a, have, I think, a little over 10 minutes left. Um, so we're going to go into some passages that teach, that is evidently teaching against eternal marriage. Um, and the first one is from Romans 7, which you brought up at the beginning of our discussion here. Romans 7, chapter 1, verse as one, uh, Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 3 say, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So this very clearly says that the, the law of marriage dies with the death of a spouse. That's right. Uh, when your spouse dies, you are no longer married to that person, and that's why you can marry someone else. That's now, what Paul is saying. Is there some invisible writing here or reading between the lines where uh, where it should say, unless you get sealed in the temple first? <laughs> well, uh, see, that's the point that I made earlier, and that is the Bible doesn't know anything about two different kinds of marriage, one that's for eternity and one that's not. Marriage is marriage. When you're married, uh, you are called by God to be exclusively faithful to that one spouse until one of you dies. And then if, if that spouse dies and you're still alive and you want to get married again, 
Paul and the rest of the Bible says that's fine. And the law that he's referring to here is that same law in Deuteronomy 25, verse 5, that the Sadducees had brought up in their yeah. conversation with Jesus. And so G Paul is saying here the same thing the rest of the Bible says, and that is that marriage is for this life. When your spouse dies, you're no longer married to that person. And, and he calls it a law. You're not under the law of marriage any longer. Right. And it that's is the only over. law that, that that's the only law of marriage there is in the Bible. Right. Exactly. Exactly right. Okay, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. These are good verses. I think they need to be talked about in the context. And it's chapter 7, verses 6 through 9 and verse 27. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Obviously, in these passages, marriage isn't that big of a deal as far as eternity is concerned. If, if the doctrine of eternal marriage uh, was true, Paul would never have said, and, and if Paul knew it, <laughs> Paul would never have said that it is good for the unmarried to remain single as he was. That doesn't make any sense because mm -mm. In, in, in the Mormon concept of eternal marriage, that is a necessary element of your eternal progression. If you don't right. do that, you're stuck. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Mormons recently have, in, uh, at least in the, in the mainstream LDS church, have sometimes made some statements saying, well, if you couldn't get married and it wasn't your fault, God will figure some way around it. But yeah. it's, that yeah. wouldn't be normal. So mm -hmm. Paul would never advise a single person to remain single if they could, if he thought that marriage was this really important, essential ingredient to a person's spiritual development and perfection. Mm -hmm. That idea just isn't it's in not view. at all. I, I need to say this. The Bible never specifically refutes the doctrine of eternal marriage because it never comes up. Because nobody in the Old Testament or the New Testament ever thought of marriage this way. And you can't make a doctrine on a silence. They make these statements that, as you think about them, clearly are in conflict with the doctrine of eternal marriage. But it never even comes up. The doctrine is a new doctrine. It's a modern innovation. It has no historical source or tradition in Christianity. And it's not something that you can find argued for or against in the Bible. And again, we have to say that uh, God doesn't change, and He's not going to change what's necessary for His plan of salvation. He doesn't right. add to it. He doesn't take from it. It is what it is. Right. And it's always been that way. In Matthew 19.10, um, the, the uh, apostles were, uh, disciples were a little bit um, surprised at what Jesus had said in Matthew, um, let's, let's read Matthew 19, 11 through 12 first, because it shows that Jesus himself is agreeing with this concept that we're talking about right now. But anyway, Matthew 19, 11 through 12, uh, Jesus said, not, every can, can, not everyone can receive this saying, referring to 1910, where he said it was better uh, for them not to marry. <clears throat> but only those to whom it is given, back to verse 11. For there are eunuchs who have been sold from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. 
is Jesus confirming what Paul said in it, this previous he verse? He really is. He's saying, look, some people uh, are meant to be single. And if you can handle it, you know, that is, that, that for the kingdom of God, that is a good thing. Uh, and the idea that everybody uh, needs to get married in order to advance as far as possible spiritually and make it into the celestial kingdom and all the rest of that, uh, Jesus is flatly contradicting it, even though it's not even something that he's addressing specifically. He's contradicting it by saying, it's really better uh, all of the things being taken into consideration if you don't get married. Now, if you do get married, be faithful. Love your wife, love your husband. But if you, do, if you don't get married, uh, for the kingdom of, sake of the kingdom of God, that's a good thing. And of course, Jesus himself didn't get married. Right. And some of his apostles did, and some, some of them were already married, and some of his apostles didn't get married. And so uh, Jesus is clearly laying down this idea that uh, there's nothing wrong with being single. Now, <laughs> unfortunately, uh, some Christians centuries later be, uh, took what Jesus said and turned it into a law. They said, all right, if you're going to serve God, if you're going to be uh, in the ministry, uh, you, you have to be single. Well, Jesus never said that. Right. And so that's an error, too. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, but it's an opposite error from the error of saying that this you need to be married in yeah, order to serve God. There's people who take both sides and just run with it and <laughs> yes. create a, an odd doctrine from it. I, I want to go back to, oh, before I go there, um, when and I say this all the time on the show, that they have made polygamy the Savior because the polygamists teach and believe that you have to live polygamy in order to get to the celestial kingdom. So that makes that polygamy, rather than Jesus, mm -hmm. it makes polygamy the Savior. Well, that's what they've done with eternal marriage. Uh, they've almost made it a co-Savior with Jesus, that Jesus isn't enough, you've got to add marriage to it and so on. And that's clearly not possible. Uh, it's, um, it, it's, it's tragic. I, I think what we're seeing is, is the, the temptation has been there in Christianity from the first century, that some people always wanted to turn Christianity into Jesus plus yeah. something else. Yeah. We wanted Jesus is important, we believe in Jesus, we believe in, in his salvation, but it's not enough. Mm -hmm. In order to get everything God wants for you, you not only have to believe in Jesus, you gotta do this, this, yeah. this, 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 and usually it's stuff that's not even in the Bible. Right. As, as we're finding tonight. Okay, let's quickly go back to Deuteronomy 25. We, we get this question all the time, especially from the polygamous circles, but also from some Mormons who want to justify Joseph Smith and the early Mormon polygamy. Uh, I want to read Deuter Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 7, where it says, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go to her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Verse 7, And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. We frequently get dogmatically. Here is where God has commanded polygamy because they are assuming this living brother is already married. Yes. But God has already brought in monogamy. He's not going to change that in this or any situation. Right. It's, it's a huge assumption that yeah. the younger brother is already married. Of course, uh, Older brothers tend to get married before their younger brothers. That's pretty normal. Yeah. So it would be very normal for a younger brother 
to be single when his older brother died before uh, producing children by his wife. Remember, uh, people would get married and they would start having babies right away, mm -hmm. very quickly. So if a, if a, a young man marries a, a, a young woman and he dies before they are able to have children, they probably, he probably died when he was very young, maybe 18, 19 years old. The younger brother is probably too young to have gotten married yet. So he is now, as the older brother has passed away unexpectedly, perhaps in a, in a battle or perhaps from a disease or something, mm -hmm. we don't know, but he's dead at a very young age, presumably. Then the younger brother, who's just now beginning to get old enough to think about getting married, is told, don't go looking for someone else. Take, take your brother's widow into mm -hmm. your home and make her your wife. Mm -hmm. So the presumption is that he's single, not that he's married. Right, exactly. And I believe that we can say that's a good presumption simply because God doesn't contradict himself. And he's made it clear that monogamy is his way for a marriage, not polygamy That's at right. all. And also, another thing in this is that in verse 7, where it says, if the man chooses not to do it, he doesn't have to do it. Right. it it's not a do or be damned kind of a concept here. He, the, the man can choose not to marry. I mean, it's not really a good thing if he does, but it's not do or to be damned. Well, and the other thing is this passage clearly indicates that when the... the uh, the first husband has died, the woman is no longer married to him. Uh, she, she needs a new husband. And uh, there's no indication there that the marriage is eternal. Um, and that's why uh, when Jesus and the Sadducees talked about this passage, Jesus explained to, to them that the passage is not talking about being married in eternity. It's talking about being married here. Mm -hmm. And when, you're, right. when your husband dies, and you're a widow, you're not married anymore. You're not married anymore, which also does not talk about eternal marriage. Well, we're, we're to the end of the show again. I want to thank you so much for coming and My pleasure. Uh, and uh, sharing. There's much more we could have talked about, but time is has run out on us, and we do appreciate uh, your coming and sharing this information with us. First um, John chapter 5, verse 9 says, and we quote, We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Verse 11 says, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. You know, there's nothing in these verses that require marriage for eternal life. It's very clear that eternal life is in Jesus Christ only. And if you don't have Jesus Christ, you don't have eternal life. And this is God's testimony. God's testimony is not something to be taken lightly, certainly should not be considered secondary to your own personal testimony or to the Bible's testimony. Listen to verse 11. It says, And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son, not in marriage. God has given us eternal life. It's a gift. It's not contingent on marriage or temple rituals or polygamy or worthiness or anything else. Eternal life is a gift offered to each of us by God himself. It's our decision to take it, but we cannot earn it because it's a gift. Now, if we take it, then we must reject everything else because eternal life is in Jesus only. We've talked about that 
already a lot in the show. It's all about Jesus. It's only about Jesus and no one and nothing else. We don't have a co-savior. We forsake all else and follow Jesus only. This means that we forsake, we forsake all church rules and rituals and regulations and what man says we have to do and everything else that is designed to make you outwardly acceptable to religious dogma instead of to God. Eternal life is in Jesus only. Jesus is the one who bought you. Marriage has nothing to do with it. Jesus died on the cross so that we could be offered his free gift of eternal life. If we attempt to earn it in any way, it insults the blood of his covenant and insults Jesus himself who suffered on the cross to purchase the gift of eternal life for us. How could marriage add to that or anything else? So take his free gift by repenting. And repenting means that we turn from what we're doing and turn to God and away from everything and everyone else and who tells you any differently. Thank you and good night. This has been the audio podcast edition of Polygamy, What Love Is This? This program is a production of A Shield and Refuge Ministry and Main Street Church of Brigham City. You can view current and past video episodes as well as download audio episodes of this program at whatloveisthis.tv. If you or someone you know is in need of assistance in leaving a polygamous situation, please contact us. We are here to help. All of our contact information can be found at shieldandrefuge.org or call us at 877-425-9993. If you have any questions or comments about this or any of our other programs, we'd love to hear from you. Write us at email at whatloveisthis.tv. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again.